There is an old Reader's Digest story, and I know that dates me a little bit. I've read Reader's Digest, but um, for those of you who don't know, it was it was a magazine that was probably in 90% of American homes when I grew up. Um, but there's a story in there about a cat that was run over by a car. The cat belonged to four-year-old Billy, and before he could find out, his mother quickly hid the remains of the cat. But after a few days, Billy finally asked, where's the cat? His mother, kneeling down next to him, trying to sympathize with him, well, Billy, the cat died. Then attempted to comfort Billy by saying to him, but it's all right, he's up in heaven with God. There was a long pause, a puzzled look on Billy's face. And then he turned to his mom and he looked in her face. He says, what does God want with a dead cat? Now, before you get, uh, you know, write letters to our, our pastor in conference that I'm teaching bad statements on the statement of the dead. This is not a statement on the dead. It's an illustration for what we want to talk about today. I. What I am doing is making a strong statement about those whom God returns to get. When God comes back and takes us all to heaven, does he want to take dead people with him? Of course not. The scriptures makes it clear that when Jesus returns, the faithful will be raised from the dead and return to life before he takes them to heaven. And as we read about in Revelation uh, Chapter 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or mourning or crying or pain, for the older things have passed away. Death will not exist in heaven or the new earth. I mean, after all, what does God want with dead people in heaven? God's plan has never once involved that which is dead, only that which is alive. Every, even the crucifixion of Jesus would have been useless without his resurrection. And it is for this fact that he lives again and gives us our hope of eternity. And so, make no mistake about it, God has no use for the dead. It is important that we bear this in mind as we take a look at the church of Sardis. I think it's rather interesting because when my wife and I were discussing this sermon and we were talking about this, this, this sentence or this letter that is given out to the church at Sardis is very straight ahead. Uh, there's one cultural difference that is very noticeable between America and Ukraine. In America, we tend to go around the corner. We don't come out and say things that are straight up. In other words, for instance, there's there's the story about the couple driving down the highway and the wife turns to the husband and she says, would you like some coffee? And the husband says no and keeps on driving, missing the hint completely. But in Ukraine, they're very much straight ahead. They are going to say it like it is, like we used to say. And here in this, when we read about this 
it's very straight ahead here what God is saying. And as we read in chapter one or chapter three, verse one, he's saying, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but actually you're dead. He is very clear about this church and the meaning of this church. First, we notice that it's unlike any of the other churches we've studied so far. There is nothing written in this letter that says you have good things. Usually in the letters, it's like, well, you have this good, but you have this bad. But in this church, he only writes, you're dead. Of all the seven churches God writes to, Sardis is the only one for which he has nothing to commend. In fact, the only thing that comes out in even close to a positive statement is found at the end of verse 1, where Jesus says this is the church that has a reputation for being a living church, even though it's actually a dying church. It says you had a once gloriful, or gloriful day. You were a living, thriving church. But now, when I look at you, all I see is dead. In a book that G.R. Beasley Murray writes, he says, The church of Sardis is that of a beautifully adorned corpse in a funeral parlor. And the Lord is not deceived. This church needed to stir up the living spirit of God in order for it to come to life. Notice in here again, as you read in verse two, how verse two starts out, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. In other words, don't sleep any longer, come to life. And in verse three, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Yes, you may be dead, but your need, your need of reviving is still there. There's still hope there for this church. Things seem to be peaceful and religiously correct. There's no heresy in this church. There's no outside persecution. And so, therefore, we are looking at this church for the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. They're not offending anyone. They're not chasing anyone away. And so it explains this calm and sedate outward experience defined as the church of Sardis. It's a normal, nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous, busy with external religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power. There are a lot of congregations even today, even in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that would receive the same declaration from God. I've, reheard, I've heard it referred to, or the, these churches referred to as the frozen chosen. You know what I'm talking about. The church that comes together for church each week talks a lot about God's salvation, but have lost their drive to do something about it. They talk a lot about what it was like to be saved and the zeal they had once upon a time, but there is nothing new happening. 
It reminds me of a community on the Atlantic coast up in New England. It's in a very turbulent, stormy area, and there was a reef offshore that caused many a bad wreck in bad weather. So the community decided they needed to form a search and rescue brigade. So they purchased some land and built an emergency shelter. They brought in specialists to help them train how they could create this search and rescue brigade, help them to go on missions, training. They purchased the highest quality equipment. They weren't a rich village, but they wanted to make sure they had the best. And over the years, they saved dozens of lives. But as time passed and as they began to become relaxed, Nautical technologies improve. Suddenly computers are taking over. No longer are there wrecks. There are much better charts. The weekly meetings to train and drill, instead of training and drilling, became social meetings. The emergency shelter became a community hall. They replaced the rescue equipment with a shuffleboard and pool table. The former search and rescue volunteers would gather and reminisce about the days when they had saved dozens of people and the new volunteers would listen in awe. This carried on from week to week until one night during a particularly strong storm, an alarm came in that a ship had gone down and a large crew was aboard. Time was of the essence. Lives were being lost. But there was little that could be done. The men were not well enough prepared. Those who had received the training were too old to be of use. Those who were young were not adequately trained, so they would not be safe. What's more, they couldn't even get the rescue equipment out, and if they could, it hadn't been properly maintained. That night, they were caught off guard, and it cost them greatly. An important Point should be made here. Up until that night, they called themselves the Search and Rescue Brigade. It still had a purpose to search and rescue and work for all intensible purposes. They still appeared to be Search and Rescue Brigade. But there was one element that was no longer present, a vital element. They were no longer doing the work of a Search and Rescue Brigade. There are far too many churches that started off as churches but aren't churches anymore. They say, yes, we are a church. We meet at the church building, sit in pews. We have hymnals, Bibles, and a declaration of faith. To all appearances, they are a church. But based on what they are doing, they're nothing more than a social club. Rather than serving as a hospital for sinners, many churches have become a hotel for saints. It was in this state that God found the church of Sardis, and to this church, to all these churches, he is giving instructions as to how to get out of this near-dead condition. Notice the call starting in verses 2 and 3. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, 
I will come to you as a thief. Notice what Jesus is commanding the church to do. He commands them to be watchful. You want to make sure your spiritual life doesn't die? Then be alert at all times. It has been said many times, and we repeat it so many times, that the cost of freedom is eternal vigilance. And this is especially true of the freedom we receive in Jesus Christ. If we are not watchful, if we do not carefully guard this gift of salvation, it will be taken away from us. Being watchful is so important for God's church that it is mentioned twice in this command. And paying attention to the warning given if we are not watchful, he will come as a thief in the night, and you will not realize what is happening until it is too late. The first reason to watch, we are told, is because when Jesus returns, it will already be too late if you are not prepared. We can even think of other examples of what Jesus was talking about with the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to return. They all knew. What was happening? They all were studied and ready, but only five were prepared. Anyone who knows the history of the Adventist church knows that our founders started out believing that when they knew Jesus would, that they knew when Jesus would return. They studied the prophecies. They calculated the date. But when it did not happen in October 22, 1844, it became the great disappointment. And many who believed with all their heart began to doubt and fall into discouragement. It was a few weeks after the great disappointment that William Miller wrote these words to the discouraged Adventist believers. Although surrounded with enemies and scoffers, yet my mind is perfectly calm and my hope in the second coming of Christ is as sure as ever. I have fixed my mind upon another time, and here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. And that is today, today, until he comes, I see him for whom my soul yearns. Today could be the day that Jesus comes. Today could be the end of time and the beginning of eternity. Today could be the day of reckoning, and even if Jesus does not appear, there is no guarantee that we will see tomorrow. And so today will be the very last day you will live before Jesus returns. Would you be ready if this last moment you had, if this was the last moment before facing Jesus? Have you put your trust in the Savior? His call to us is to be ready at all times, to hold him as our Savior and live every moment in anticipation of his return. The story is told of a meeting between Satan and his minions. Christianity was spreading rapidly, and they needed to figure out a new angle to stop it. Suggestions came from the throng, maybe we could create more hypocrites in the church. 
No, the devil said, the Christians realize there will always be hypocrites in the church. And they are teaching each other only to look at Jesus. That won't work. How about we bring back fierce persecution? If we make being Christian unbearable, they will run away. Well, yes, that gets some for sure. But what happens and what I've found in the past is that you get about 12 for every one that run away because they see the strength in those that are convicted of their faith, even through persecution. Many other ideas came out and were quickly discarded. But finally, Lucifer stood up in front and said, I think I know what will work best. It is to make Christians lose sight of the return of their God. Yes, I think that will work. What do you mean, one question? Do you mean tell them he's not coming back? No, replied Satan, that would be foolish. If we tell them he wasn't coming, they'd see right through that. But get them to think he's not coming back for a long time. And as if it had, he will come back, not in their lifetime, maybe it's a long time. And lull them to sleep. Don't get them to forget it altogether. No, just let them think about it in a distant, almost unforeseeable sort of way. Once we get them to believe that the return of Jesus couldn't possibly be as close as the Bible says, they will stop concerning themselves with being ready, and that's when we shall have them. I fear that for too long we have fallen for this deception. We have been unfaithful in our watchfulness for our Lord's return. Too many have realized too late that they were not ready. We have lost sight of the nearness of Christ's return, and it has come upon us as a thief. As Adventists, too many of us are waiting for the passing of Sunday laws before we will believe the end is here. I think we look for these signs way too much. I remember when I was in college, there was a sermon that scared me more than any other. Um, as a kid, I always remember you always had the conference worker coming around who would always tell you the story of the computer called the beast, and it's out there, and look out, it's going to get us. Or, oh, look at this new credit card. It'll be imprinted in your hand. We're looking for those signs. Don't look for those signs. They're already here. And this person who spoke to us was the Seventh-day Adventist lawyer who was a representative to Congress. His basic sermon was, don't look for those signs, they're there. The laws are on the books. They can take it away tomorrow. Okay? Look at the rhetoric already out there on how we treat Muslims right now, right? It's already there. This should scare you more than looking for a Sunday because when the end of time happens, if you're looking for a sign, you realize, oh, it already happened. If you are looking to Jesus, you will realize he's coming soon. So today we look for that word that says, watch out. It is the call from God this morning. We are living on borrowed time and Jesus is coming. How will he find you? If we want to be ready, we must be watching for his return. Until he returns, your cry and mine must be, Today, today 
is the day he will come for me. I will be ready. To those who are ready for his his return, Jesus gives a precious promise. How are we to be made ready? How are we to overcome? We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? It means putting our trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the only way to be made worthy of heaven. It was because of our sinfulness that he shed his blood and because of our shed blood that we are made sinless. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved. For those who believe, the return of Jesus brings no fear, only joy. For those who put their trust in his sacrifice will be found worthy at his appearing. Continuing our reading, when we read in verses 5 and 6, He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.